Hello and welcome to this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. I'm your host, Patrick Farnsworth. Before we jump in, please consider supporting this work through Patreon, patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness. Go to that website. You can join for a dollar or more a month. By doing that, you'll gain access to these interviews before I release them to the public. There's other exclusive content. You'll also gain access to the Discord server, and there's some very lively, uh, very good discussions that are being had there. Also, if you have any thoughts that you want to share with me and the listeners of the podcast, uh, you can do that by leaving a voicemail at a phone number that I've set up, and that phone number is 208-918-2837. Leave a message up to three minutes in length, and, and if you just want to send me your thoughts and not have it featured on the podcast, please state that in the message so I can know uh, whether to feature it on the podcast or not. That's it, everybody. Enjoy the episode. Renowned climate scientist Dr. Jason Box joins us for this episode. We discuss his work studying the very specific and broad implications of anthropogenic climate disruption. He cites nearly three decades worth of on-the-ground documentation of the impacts human industrial activity is having on the rapidly thawing Greenland ice sheet, something that he's written about extensively in his independently published book, Faster Than Forecast, The Story Ice Tells About Climate Change. He is a professor of glaciology and climate for the Geologic Survey of Denmark and Greenland. Uh, Since 1994, he has made 30 expeditions to Greenland to install and maintain measurement networks on the Greenland ice sheet. He is a lead author for Arctic Monitoring and Assessment Program and a contributing author to the most recent three intergovernmental panel on climate change assessment reports. He is an outspoken advocate for climate change risk management, including having joint panels to evaluate climate-altering technologies. Jason specializes in satellite observations of snow and ice and mass balance modeling. He currently lives in Copenhagen with his family. You can check out his book, Faster Than Forecast, at the website www.sila.cool. That's S-I-L-A dot C-O-O-L. You can purchase it chapter by chapter as he publishes this independently by doing that, as it states on that website. Uh, with each book sold, a number of trees will be planted in the name of the book buyer, coordinates and updates shared as our trees take a little bite out of the climate catastrophe. And with that, everybody, I really thank you for your time, for your attention, and here is my interview with Jason Box. The first thing I wanted to talk about was just sort of the the way you're releasing this book um, is, you know, you're taking a less traditional route, I guess. I mean, you're a prominent scientist, you're well-known, you're well-published, but um, you're publishing on a website, you know, chapter by chapter. And that was, a, I think, a conscious choice that you were making. So I was very curious as to why you were taking that route. It's part to just get it out there. The project has been dragging on since 2016. I, I should have found a way to publish at that time. And I've, talking, I've spoken with some publishers, and what I anticipate is if I worked with a publisher, they would ask for numerous edits and you know framing and scoping. And I, given how long the project has dragged on, I, I'm not up for that. And the design of the project, besides getting out this story of how the ice is melting faster than even the scientists 
can appreciate. It's an experiment to learn the ropes in publishing something or writing, writing a book really. And so I've gone through that process and I've learned a thing or two and I've got some other ideas for uh, books that I think have a much wider market uh, because the the faster than forecast, the story that ICE tells about abrupt climate change, that's I think is is a rel- pretty narrow kind of science interested uh, market, mm-hmm. and and so I don't anticipate that book to um, you know be a bestseller. Uh, but yeah, one thing that's cool about self releasing is uh, in Denmark they have some nice laws about uh, publishers and. I'm offering that for each chapter that uh, people buy, I will personally plant a tree for them in Greenland. Mm. Interesting. Well, let me ask about that because, I mean, we think of Greenland, we think of this vast ice sheet, you know, it's just incredible white sheet of ice. We don't think of trees being planted in Greenland. Is that a misconception on on my behalf or... I think it's totally fair to have the conception of Greenland as this frozen expanse. Mm-hmm. And it is enormous. I think I don't appreciate the full scale of it, considering that if you're standing on one side, you look over, it's 500 miles to the other side, and that's on the the narrow side. If you're in mm-hmm. the south looking north, you're talking about a 1,000 miles of Mm-hmm. of ice in front of you and and um but in the south uh, the climate is maritime it is uh, subarctic and at an equivalent latitude in labrador to the west or say norway to the east mm. forests thrive and so the trees that people have started planting in greenland in the starting in the 1890s they're they're quite um they're thriving and uh the climate is getting more favorable for trees there's more precipitation and it's warmer Mm. however there are uh changing extremes like elsewhere around the planet the it's not just that the climate is warming uh we bear witness to and and we now understand that uh persistent extremes are a signature of the Arctic warming more than three times faster than the rest of the globe. That's mm-hmm. slowing down the jet stream. It's leading to um, these persistent climate events, uh, droughts, floods, heat waves, even cold snaps. Uh, many would remember Texas having record cold. Mm-hmm. And this was a, a really steep excursion of the jet stream south and it was persistent it stuck mm-hmm. and uh, that really caused problems that that cold snap and you look at any climate event today it bears the fingerprint of arctic climate change because the arctic is warming faster that is slowing down the jet stream and there's now a, a pretty mature body of science about 20 technical articles that uh, back up that that um that new that's a new finding and it also threatens the breadbasket regions of our worlds um so 
that's one of the connections of the Arctic with uh, the rest of the world. Yeah, there's a few like statements or lines that have really stood out to me in watching some of your videos and reading your book. Um, I mean, one of them is like, what what happens in the Arctic does not stay in the Arctic. So when you talk about the cold snap in Texas, people, I, I don't know if it's just uh, willful ignorance. I think that's part of it. It's also maybe poor messaging. Uh, there's a combination of reasons, right. but people's understanding of climate change is really, or, or global warming is, well, if the planet is warming, then why are we having these really extreme weather events where it gets very cold in places that are you know, usually very warm or temperate? Um, so a place like Texas, yeah, you have a cold snap that lasts a couple of weeks and, you know, brings down the grid and, you know, right. everything get, just gets completely disrupted. And obviously there's a lot of intersecting issues with that, you know, infrastructural issues and, you know, political issues and so on. But um, I think, yeah, I think understanding the climate as being thoroughly disrupted and um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think just that line of you know, what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. So why people should care right. about what's happening in Greenland is that it's affecting pretty much every region of the of the planet, it seems. Yeah, it's, it's hard for us to think about the interconnection of everything, but it's true that everything is connected. Mm -hmm. And climate change is not a very good frame. I mean, it's technically true and global warming is technically true that we're that is averaged over the globe. It's warming. Okay. Um, but the communication hasn't been successful about delivering to the public uh, understanding we're talking about destabilizing weather patterns that we've come to take for granted. Farmers could assume in the past that the rains would come at a certain time of year and the, the seasons would be predictable that we are losing. And and that is an immediate impact uh, now, and it's um, more than likely going to intensify that loss of stability of climate. Um, so yeah, the you know politicians in the U.S. and presumably elsewhere they exploit this the fact that it, it this pattern that we've seen a lot of in the last ten years where it's cold in the in the east so dc is getting a lot of snow meanwhile you know at the same time uh, the west western us is getting uh, drought conditions mm -hmm. uh, but it's convenient for politicians to say look where's the global warming it's cold in in the us and they throw a snowball and that has uh, 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 the desired impact is to reinforce the the story that um there there isn't something to worry about you know it's i i could use some global warming right now it's cold um, but but the the reality is that um the the jet stream patterns getting stuck in, in in positions is is the signature one of the signatures of arctic climate change right okay yeah so i mean there's another statement <clears throat> that really stood out to me that you made and I, I i can't remember if it was in a video or in your book but the I think this really introduces people to your work, which is, I think, pretty extraordinary, um, which is that Greenland is a laboratory. Um, I think about the, how many dozens, what's 30 or more expeditions that you've made to Greenland. Um, 
at this point. Um, I, I just think about the fact that, you know, within the realm of science and not being a scientist, so I don't fully, of course, have that personal or, or that, that perspective or understanding, but I think, you know, there, there seems to be different approaches to how to understand something as complex and as large as climate change, um, which is to use satellite imagery and to sort of have this almost like, it's like, it's not on the ground. It's not personal, but you're actually out there and you're putting, you know, equipment out there. You're actually measuring things and you're doing this in person. And so I, you know, this seems to have led to almost a, I would say a revolution or a massive change in glaciology where your approach, uh, being there in person, uh, and maybe the approach of others, which is to look through satellite imagery alone, has maybe disrupted some of the ideas that exist within glaciology. Would you say that's correct? There's a lot of value in using your own senses, your your eyes, especially to observe something. Then and then you, when you're in, when you're on the ground and and flying around, you 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 see things that that are not encoded into the models that people make from the office. The, mm. the, the models are uh, a mental framework that is encoded perhaps in a, in a, uh, a calculation mm. um, to, you know, that, and that calculation has several factors that the scientists have added to it. Um, and it's a facsimile of reality. It's, it's like a fax it's low res, mm the nature of course has infinite complexity infinite fidelity and the models that are being developed by a lot of smart people they simply lack numerous factors that are actually happening and so when you have the benefit of visiting places in in person your senses and the power of the human brain um, synthesizes a lot of information, allowing you to gain new insights. And, and so the observers um, have that advantage and, and they can inform the model development process. However, making a model that, that can realistically reproduce what's happening in nature is challenging to say the very least. Right. Yeah. And I think one of the things that stood out to me certainly was beginning to understand, um, speaking of, I guess, some of the the shifts that have occurred in the, you know, the atmospheric science and uh, glaciology kind of having to come to a, to recognize a relationship with one another, a direct relationship was this effect that's been described as the Zwali effect. I think I'm saying that correctly. Um, could you describe what that effect is? I think it's really important to understand how sensitive the Arctic is and, and Greenland in particular is to climate changes that are occurring as a result of human industrial activity over the past few hundred years. Um, could you describe what that effect is and kind of take us through the steps of how that was understood? And um, yeah, sure. Yeah, the, the timing of my career was fortuitous in the way that we didn't yet understand that water draining through the ice sheet had a lubricating effect. And so what I learned in 1995 in glaciology from some smart people 
was the conventional knowledge, the ice sheet is frozen at the bed, mm. minus, minus 20 Celsius. And the reality was uh, exposed in 2002. And that's when Greenland th was thrust into headlines and has stayed there for the other several factors that I detailed in the book. But the first um, surprise was that uh, summer meltwater drains down through the many cracks and fissures and pressurizes the bed and, and lubricates the bed. Water is incompressible fluid. So the ice sheet, even though a mile thick, can glide on a, especially a pressurized bed. And that, that happens when there's a surplus of water delivery into the subglacial environment. And so in 2002, Jay Zwally and others published uh, a fixed GPS that was uh, um, recording uh, daily speed ups because there's more uh, meltwater delivery during the peak of day when the sun is highest in the sky and the the, the sun goes slightly down in summer and, and even the daily cycle is resolvable and the seasonal cycle. And when the melt season ends, the this flow acceleration ceased. And so this suddenly in our minds, the idea that there was a direct connection between how intense the summer melt is and the speed of the ice sheet, that was a real epiphany mm in 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 our consciousness and so that's the zwali effect okay yeah i mean there just seems to be I, I just think that the processes of climate disruption as it's playing out it just seems to me that what was seen as uh, almost uh, as baked in as, as far as science is like it's just this is the way it is this is how it's going to function um and we make all these models and they try to project that out and try to plan economically or, you know, make all these political decisions around that. It just seems like there's always surprises that are just popping up repeatedly. It's like, it's, it's not that it's an affront to our ability to observe. It's just, I, I think it has to be appreciated how sensitive the climate system really is to human activity and that the ice, say in Greenland, is thawing and melting far more quickly than we could have even anticipated. Um, and that is, I don't know, that to me, it kind of, I'm just curious as, as a scientist, I mean, how do you reconcile with that sort of, uh, it, it's sort of like standing, you know, when you look at, look at the universe, if you're, if you're in a, a space and you see all the stars, it just sort of makes you feel very small, sort of a feeling like the climate system is far more complex than we can even model. Um, I guess I'm curious how you feel your role is in all of this, you know, like how as a scientist, you know, you're trying to communicate this to the public and to governments of the world. Um, yeah, I just, I, I guess this feeling that, you know, things are moving much more quickly than we could have possibly have anticipated. Um, I guess, how does that inform your work? Yeah. I think everyone can appreciate that um, there are ways, uh, me mechanisms, physical mechanisms in nature that 
that um, we haven't yet fully anticipated. I mean, we're really not that far into the scientific revolution and it's like a candle in the dark that illuminates what's there and we see some of it, we don't see it all. And, and, and by spending time in, in Greenland and on the ice, um, we encountered additional um, physical mechanisms that they, almost all of them um, compound the initial effect of warming, mm -hmm. producing a nonlinear response. Mm -hmm. And we tend to think linearly, cause and effect. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really hard for the human brain to get more than a couple uh, multiplications into a process because it, it becomes nonlinear and mm. and we we simply lack the 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 mental power really to think multi-dimensionally like that so mm. we've been finding a, multiple additional melt factors i i put a video on youtube that that goes into like five um factors that just the lakes that form on the greenland ice sheet surface they so we've identified categorized measured documented more than five individual melt factors that amplify the effect of just the lakes the, these are surface flooded areas on the ice sheet and they're real conspicuous because you can see them they they're dark blue they absorb a lot of sunlight. Um, they form higher in a warming climate. They drain earlier. Uh, they they put more water through the system, um, and and those are examples of how just the lakes are multipliers. Well, there's other things like the darkening of snow from being just simply being wet uh, longer uh, because the the grains uh, get larger and that makes them darker. They absorb more sunlight. That's that's a multiplier. Um, there's a biological factor that makes the snow and ice darker, further uh, multiplying the initial effect of warming. So as the melt season gets longer, these multiplying effects uh, stack up, and you get a big response. Uh, I think you can apply the same idea to humidity in the atmosphere. Uh, the, the, the atmosphere is getting more humid. Uh, that is shown by multiple independent observations. And that extra humidity in the atmosphere is creating heavier downpours. It's uh, heavier snowfalls. Um, there's more heat uh, when that moisture condenses into droplets. It releases the heat to the surroundings that that puts uh, buoyant energy or buoyancy into cloud formation. So you can mm -hmm. have more, uh, say, stronger hurricanes for sure, mm -hmm. uh, because sea surface temperatures are warming uh, amid uh, a more humid atmosphere. Uh, hurricane or uh, tornado intensity is probably exacerbated by this. Um, that's a very complicated topic, but I'm just trying to give some examples beyond ice. Yeah. Uh, about the this this uh, interactive feedbacking 
within right. the climate system that just represents the, its complexity. I mean, it's it's a fluid, it's it's turbulent, it's chaotic, it's mm -hmm. fractal. This is uh, kind of us beginning to understand or conceive of of how uh, you know the atmosphere, a fluid can can operate. Of course, that's that's a complex process and. Right. Uh, the ice is conspicuous. Uh, it's exotic. It, it, it. People have a mental conception of, of uh, you know, the vastness and and whatever it is. It's it's white, but but oh, it's not. It's not so white. It's it's getting darker. Mm -hmm. So the the ice. The people that do ice, they've they've gotten disproportionately attention. Perhaps that's underlined by the fact that sea level rise threatens hundreds of enormous cities globally, and uh, yet um, there are plenty of other factors in in natural systems that are getting hammered now and already matter now. Sea level rise is a growing catastrophe, and it's really more of a major issue towards the end of this century and beyond. It's just only getting worse, but to Today, now we're already facing um, mass extinction, uh, loss of pollinators, uh, uh, chemical uh, contamination of, of of aquatic systems, soil loss. I mean, these are now, and they threaten food security, water security. Uh, yet, <laughs> ice is is iconic, and it's like kind of like conveniently uh, distant. And oh yes, the ice is melting. Look, this ice shelf broke off. Oh, mm -hmm. isn't that interesting? You read flipping through the newspaper when we should really be even more concerned about pollinators and soil right. loss and the water and, and food security loss. That's interesting because I mean, obviously, you're well known for your, you know, discussing um, Greenland and the ice sheet and you know the the kind of uh, massive shifts that come with with ice loss, but. Um, you know, what you're really pointing to is, is that it's easy to almost, yeah, to sort of look at this far off place. Like I've never been to Greenland. Most people will never go to Greenland. Uh, most people will never go to Antarctica either. Right. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of, it feels exotic. It feels like it's pushed off to the periphery of our kind of collective consciousness. We can kind of just say like the ice is melting. It's going to eventually lead to something that's happening, uh, decades from now, which is uh, sea level rise. Um, even though it's obviously already occurring, but you know, th there is this sort of thing and I th think it's, it's natural, but it's also coming from other sources, which is to push it off into the sort of future that another generation is going to have to deal with. But as you're talking about here, there are things that are really immediate that are happening right now. I mean, when you started this work years ago, I mean, I, just from reading your book, of course, I mean, you talked about numerous things that you were uh, observing that were happening far more quickly, faster than forecast. Uh, and I, I suppose that that was just an enormous surprise to you as much as to anyone else. But I mean, again, it really points to just how sensitive the climate system really is. So there are numerous things that are currently unfolding that are, seems like they're feedbacking. They're, they're like uh, really um, producing, um, effects that are just kind of almost difficult to anticipate. And how do we understand this as far as adapting? I mean, we can talk about sea level rise, and I think there can be models or, or ideas put forward as far as adapting to these changes. But 
I think that, um, you know, when we talk about like heat waves, that's currently a, a really big issue. We're talking about, you know, on the, um, you know, India and Pakistan had these, ma- I don't know if it's over yet, but they've had these massive heat waves that are, you know, leading to people dying. Um, last year in the Pacific Northwest, we had a, a, a heat wave that was surreal, uh, having experienced it. Um, I, I, I'm curious about your approach to now that things are unfolding as they are, how do we adapt to these these vast changes that are occurring? The response involves um, adaptation and mitigation, and we're kind of failing at the mitigation that is reducing carbon emissions and getting into carbon drawdown. Uh, I conclude the book with what I call radical solutions, and and they are fully justified because the risk is so so high. And we're accelerating uh, toward uh, a brick wall. Mm. And the adaptation is something that certainly has limits. And 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 uh, I was able to get a much broader perspective as an environmental science, having taught introductory environmental science at university level for nine years. And that's when I was blown away that there's a very long list of environmental disruptions that humans are responsible for and and yes ice melt is iconic and it conveniently distant in some ways but as i mentioned you know soil loss and mm-hmm. biodiversity uh, collapse that's that's ongoing now is um, is something that that helped me you know really broaden my perspective and i've even recently been broadening my perspective, looking at Arctic-wide climate changes, mm. uh, numerous indicators, uh, sea ice, snow cover, um, greening of the tundra. And and when you, so I had tunnel vision on Greenland, you know, and it's, mm-hmm. it's comfortable actually just to look at that laboratory because it's a vast mm. homogenous target, at least that's was what we thought it was, but zoom out and you see the interconnection of Greenland with, with the rest of um, the Arctic and the Ar- and then the connection mm-hmm. of the Arctic with the rest of the world. Well, back to adaptation, uh, the limits are, uh, unfortunately that it's really the most, only the most resourceful people and, and nations that can, um, adapt through, um, better climate control, uh, in their homes and mm-hmm. buildings and cars and, cities you know planting trees in cities makes a lot of sense because trees are this natural technology that has a lot of evaporative cooling and shading effects and and absorbing water so it doesn't produce flooding and 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 uh there's 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 certainly quite a bit at the urban environment especially considering the fact that more than two-thirds of people now live in urban environments and that's only increasing that fraction so Urban environments need to be designed uh, to handle heavy rain, heavy snow, uh, heat waves, and 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 so if that society that locally has the resources to make those investments, that society will be able to ad- adapt better to buffer the 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 greatest impacts. Unfortunately, let's say more than half of the world lacks those resources, and that's where there'll be untold suffering. 
uh, or immeasurable suffering. And so that's the future. Uh, and that's the present. Um, I mean, something like half of the world's population goes to bed without their adequate uh, calorie intake. Uh -huh. And uh, people or deniers and contrarians say, oh, the we've never produced more food and, and, um, and uh, death rates because of war are at an all-time low. And, and while that is true, the, 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 the magnitude of suffering is larger because there's more people. Mm -hmm. And, and the, this, say, half of the world's population or more that, that can't, that, or that, that lacks the resources to mitigate uh, climate and ecological uh, breakdown and th those folks are are at a loss um, and we get into lifeboat ethics where uh, you can save uh, these people that are lucky enough to be on the lifeboat and those that that aren't um, can't be saved and this is actually a rational argument even though cynical and, mm -hmm. and sad and but I think that's how the world will begin to look at this crisis and how a lot of uh, some people already do. Um, and that'll be this kind of dual world, uh, those that have and those that don't. And, and um, so that that's a little glimpse into the end. I think the intensifying politics around this. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to unpack with, a lot of that because like I, I live here in the US you're from the US I think you understand what it's you don't live in the US currently but I mean this is a whole other discussion but honestly like you know the way that things are shaping up politically in the United States when I think about what's happening just on the political level and how the response will be what it already is but what it'll be in the future to you know, as climate disruption intensifies and what comes with that, which is mass migration, um, you know, uh, lack of resources um, and so on and so forth. It's sometimes I think adaptation from the perspective of a nation state uh, resembles, if not resembles, it actually is a form of authoritarianism and fascism. And that to me is where we get into this really tricky, <laughs> it's not even tricky. It's, you know, there's some pretty clear lines here that we shouldn't cross, but. Um, <clears throat> I think it know, is tricky because you know, say half in the U S will go along with um, Democrats who are tr uh, saying that they're championing uh, the green transition mm -hmm. And, you know, hey, let's drive electric vehicles and let's put up a lot of windmills and solar. And while I think that's better than ignore the problem, uh, drill here, drill now, um, the, the green capitalism vision is sadly non-sustainable. Um, it's better, again, but it has fundamental issues Jevons paradox is one uh, just that the energy demand will continue rising it, mm -hmm. it it's you have to somehow convince people to use less energy mm -hmm. I don't see that happening um, 
and and say the the progress even progressives i mean to to there is a critique there that and a bigger critique i would say for for most conservatives but there there's there's some fundamental flaws with um the green transition uh, i, I want to just critique that the last earth day uh, biden had a, a global summit or hosted uh, this global summit you know putin spoke uh, mm. you name it bolsonaro spoke um, mm. uh, and uh, they said their words the what what i found uh, mind-blowing was that the american commentators um they were clearly salivating at all of the wealth that would be produced by the green transition mm -hmm. and and they're right that they're they are going to get rich off of this thing mm -hmm. what's not going to benefit as much as the framing suggests is nature and and yeah. the poor in the global south mm -hmm. and and so I'm very concerned about the state of the global ecosystem mm -hmm. and the the green transition as as it's currently conceived and we we can't really um, without adopting a degrowth approach um, and a, a limits to capitalism kind of approach then this this green, project isn't going to deliver um, the kind of ecological um, protection and that that I think that we really need. Um, otherwise, it, I guess that future kind of looks to me like a bit like a shopping mall or yeah. something. It, it's mm -hmm. it's an artificial construct. I think we really need to preserve some nature. And because nature and its own complexity, it, it it can deliver a lot of solutions. So working with nature um, is where our our philosophy should be heading. But I, it, instead, it's an industrial capitalist green, mm -hmm. you know, glow about it. Um, right. That yes, it's lower carbon, but it's 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 not nearly low enough carbon. We mm -hmm. need to get into carbon drawdown, and nature can provide those a lot of those solutions, but we need to sustain nature. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I think that there's, um, I, I think what's, 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 um, apparent after having done this podcast for as long as I have and, and speaking to the people I've spoken to over these years and, um, you know, everything is available to us to provide, you know, this drawdown that you're talking about, you know, these things have existed, they, they will always exist, these ways of knowing and being have always existed, and we just need to adopt them. And uh, um, I'm not very optimistic, that will happen. But that is, um, well, we don't really have enough time to get into maybe some of this, I, I know that you have to get going here in a few minutes. But yeah, the, I'm, I'm glad that this conversation went all the way wide because uh you know yes ice is iconic we that study ice we're kind of like the cool guys uh but as a, a geographer and an environmental scientist um i think it, it it's it was more interesting to 
talk the full scale and how ice okay ice fits in there yes it's melting faster than we had previously been able to conceive and there probably are additional surprises um yeah it's like when you're when you're planning um you come up with your plan a plan a let's call it and the the fact is that plan doesn't and really cannot include all these surprise factors uh and and so we have to um anticipate the unanticipatable we have to expect the surprises and that's really what the book ultimately is about um that it was just one surprise after the next uh that these factors that that allowed uh, the ice to respond more quickly and as we touched on earlier those a lot of those same multipliers uh, apply in the rest of our system that that we all live in this this global planetary system and right. so i think it's of course really valuable to to think about uh yeah the intersection of, of politics economy yeah. environment right yeah i just want to say one last thing which is that you know yeah anticipating surprises things that we can't anticipate because, or we don't know what's going to be, but we can anticipate that there will be more because it's already happening. I mean, there's already things that were, as you said, over and over again, you were surprised by what you were discovering, what you were reporting uh, or, or documenting. Um, so why wouldn't there be more of those? And why wouldn't we expect that, you know, more un- unanticipated outcomes to occur uh, from these these really complex changes that are currently underway right now? Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. If you'd like to learn more about my work, you can go to my website, lastbornthewilderness.com. Everything you need to know will be there. If you would like to support my work, there are a few ways to do that. The first thing you can do, of course, is subscribe to this podcast. This podcast is on numerous platforms, so wherever you listen to podcasts, it should be there. So consider subscribing. And if you'd like to support this work monetarily, there are a few ways to do that. The first is through a one-time donation through PayPal and Venmo, go to paypal.me slash lastbornpodcast. Or you can find me on Venmo at lastbornpodcast. And if you would like to support my work on a regular basis, on a monthly or yearly basis, you can do that through Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness. And if you support my work there, you will gain early access to these interviews before I release them publicly. Um, You will find other exclusive content there as well. So to everyone that is a supporter of my podcast, however you choose to do that, thank you very, very much. If you would like to leave an audio message that can be featured on the podcast, you can do that through two means. You can call the phone number 208-918-2837 and leave a message up to three minutes long. Please let me know what your intention is with the message so that I can then choose to feature it or not feature it on the podcast. If you would like to also just go to my website, lastbornthewilderness.com, you'll find a link at the top of the page. That'll let you drop an audio file if that is preferable. And that is it, everybody. Thank you so much again for listening to this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. Have a great week.